Mark chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1 there. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit, that they thus reasoned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, that has to be the testimony of every single one of Your children. We've never seen anything like this, Lord. What You've done in our life. Lord, thank You that You are our solid rock and our salvation. You're our, 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 our shield and exceeding great reward. We praise You for that. Lord, we want to love You more. We want to, Lord, we want to honor You more. We want, Lord, we want to be affected by Your Word. We want to affect one another. We want to stir one another on to love and good works. We want to magnify this glorious Savior, Lord. We pray You'd help us in this hour, in this passage. Lord, it would be encouragement to Your people. and Lord, You speak to those that yet stand outside Your Son and His saving grace. Pray You please come in the power of Your Spirit. Go in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Get a drink of water here. Well, we didn't really we didn't really speak about authority in our last message, but Mark has not not left that theme. Um, in fact, he's continuing to build upon that theme. He started out showing Jesus authority over demons, and then he continues on showing Jesus authority over sickness and disease. And Mark provides even a, a specific case there where he's in Peter's home, and Peter's mother-in-law gets this sickness, this illness, a fever, and Jesus. It takes that away. But, but lest we think Jesus' power and authority is limited to fevers and granny's bum hip, Mark ratchets this thing up a bit here by capturing Jesus' encounter with this leper. We looked at that last time. A man full of leprosy. And even leprosy was no match to the authoritative power of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1. Mark begins chapter 2 taking this thing to a whole other level. 
Yes, Jesus has authority over disease. And He has such that He can miraculously heal the worst of them. And even do so to unrepentant people. People just come into Jesus to look to get out of Him whatever they can. There are many people that did that in Jesus' day, just as there are in our day today. People looking to take advantage. However, Mark wants us to know that Jesus also heals internally. Not just externally, but internally. That's what we have here in this account. Jesus is not only Lord over sickness, He's Lord over sin. He's come to take sin away. In fact, all His wonder-working power leading up to this point right here was intended to highlight this overarching truth. This whole scene that unfolds here in chapter, in chapter 2, these 12 verses, it's all for this very purpose. Mark And Jesus tells us why in, in verse 10 that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Those words are intended to those folks in that home, those folks in that day, and from every day onward to right here in this moment, in this building right now, to you and I. I have come so that you might know I've come to take away the sin of the world. To take it away. Unlike the previous healings we looked at, this one goes much deeper than mere flesh. This one reaches into the innermost regions of someone's person, their soul. Their soul. Jesus can cleanse an eternal soul from all its filth and all its mire. That's the extent of His authority. Which carries with it a very very clear implications about who this Jesus is. And I want to start by pointing that out. Pointing out the fact that the main point of these 12 verses is just that. that You might know that Jesus has come to take away sin. He has power on earth to take away sin. The main point of this story is not about faith. Yes, faith is part of it. And I would say I would add a significant part of it. But it is secondary to the main thing being revealed to us here. Mark spends his first chapter building this narrative to reach this point right here to underscore his opening statement Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here it is. Now he's already alluded to, to Christ's deity multiple times, but here he delivers ministry proof number one. Jesus is God in the flesh. And we'll come back to this. But I'm not going to major on Mark's major point. Because I'm thinking most folks sitting here need little convincing that Jesus is God. Although I think I could argue if you're outside of Christ here today, you really don't probably believe that to be the case. Or your idea of that is very weak and corrupt causing you not to respond to Christ in the manner in which you ought. I mean, this, 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 these 12 verses are packed. I mean, we could pull a lot of things out of here, but, but, I, but I actually do want to talk about faith. Because there's so much in this account that's instructive to us about saving faith. And so I'm just going to dive into the text. And as we're going through it, I'm going to point out eight observations of saving faith found in these verses. 
First, let's notice the details of Mark's introduction here. Verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that Jesus was at home. The some days must have, must have meant weeks or months. And I say that because of what we're told in verse 45 there above about the leper that went, after the leper went out and publicized what Jesus did, it says Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. So some time had passed, enough time to where he felt it was safe he could return to the city. We don't know how long, but he makes his way back to Capernaum and he no more makes it back home and there's a crowd gathers. And as far as the home is concerned, we're not told who this home belonged to. I mean, was this, was this a first century grace house that the team took refuge in while they were in Capernaum? Um, was it Peter's house? We don't really know. It does seem most likely that it's Peter's home because of chapter 1 seems to indicate that that's where they stayed during their original time in Capernaum. But we don't know. But there they are in the home. And verse 2 says, many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and He was preaching the Word to them. So people quickly gathered. The Word gets out. Jesus is back. The crowd became such that it was just completely packed to overflowing. There was no room, not even at the door, it says. And what was Jesus doing? He wasn't healing. He was preaching the Word. Whatever their motive was for showing up, Jesus preached the truth about His kingdom. And that's a great example for us to be following. Because people come to services for all kinds of reasons, right? We need to be faithful to preach the truth to them. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's preaching the truth. And then things start to get interesting. Verse 3 tells us, and they came bringing him, to him rather, a paralytic carried by four men. These, these no names named they, referred to as they, they now enter the picture here. And they're a bit late to the meeting. And it wasn't because they were on San Antonio time, but actually because they actually had a guy they were carrying. Four men were carrying another man. And we're told there in verse 5 that Jesus acknowledged their faith. So, so these men are approaching this house on a mission that's motivated by faith. And this is our first observation of saving faith. It concerns itself with the welfare of others. There's a news, news had made its way through town, and immediately most folks make a mad dash if it was Peter's house, to Peter's house. The miracle man's here. Let's go. Oh, but go get a front seat. Let's get in the front row. I want to hear all he has to say. Let's, let's see this. What's, what's he going to do next? And before you know it, they're all packed in there like sardines. Meanwhile, these ones, these ones move by faith. They're, they're thinking about the welfare of someone else. One who desperately needs what Jesus alone can give him. Whether he was a friend or a relative, we don't know. But we know this. They knew this man's need and they, they knew the only one that can help him with that need. And so they tell him about it. They tell him Jesus about Jesus and that Jesus is here and they want to take him to Jesus to get him healed. 
And after he gives consent, they grab the guy, bed and all, and they start hauling him off. And by the time they reach the house, oh, there's a big log jam at the door. It's overcrowded. And Luke tells us they were seeking to bring him in. So they tried, they tried to penetrate that crowd. Mark here says in verse 4, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd. Let's just consider this for a second. I mean, there's a contrast here between saving faith and just lost religious curiosity. Highlighted just in the attempt to get this broken man to Jesus. I mean, this crowd simply would not let them in. I mean, no compassion. What a display of selfish, hard-heartedness of fallen man. Right? Saving faith has compassion. It actually thinks about others and, and, and looks out for their welfare. Mere religion does not. And that was made very clear last week, right? I looked at 1 John. What's John say? Whoever loves God must love his brother. In fact, he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen, John says. John, John actually makes that one of three indicators of whether or not you're, you're a genuine Christian. And we kind of use that as an acid test, but actually John wrote the letter to give Christians assurance. You struggle with assurance? Go read 1 John. John provides three main realities that prove your Christianity. And one of them is loving others, especially Christians. Before these guys even get to Jesus, Mark is painting us a contrasting picture of the observer of Christ and the lover of Christ. Those impressed with Him and those possessed by Him, by His grace at work in them. A grace that produces an others-mindedness. A grace that produces the same kind of love that Jesus had for those in need. These men had it. I mean, the hardness of these people's heart, if you think about this, is astounding. Brethren, just th- let's just recreate the scene here. At three, th- three, uh, 311 Hedges, let's just say, we get John Piper in here, or John MacArthur, right? He's coming to preach. And everybody in the city finds out about this. I mean, this place is going to be packed. There's going to be standing room only. It's going to be all clustered up at the door, flowing out into the parking lot. Okay, so, so, so that's the scenario. Imagine four guys coming with some paralyzed guy on a gurney. You tell me what's going to happen once they get to the door. You would think people are going to part the way, right? And allow this, this disadvantaged guy to get into the building to hear the preacher. Especially if he's a preacher who's, who's, who's already been known for healing people. I wouldn't, probably wouldn't be MacArthur then, would it? <laughs> so Piper's in here. <laughs> but, but think about that. Surely people would let somebody like that in. They would not let this guy in. That's how hard they were. They totally ignore him and those carrying him. What a display of just heartless humanity. They were not going to let him through. Just think about it. Inside is the teacher of all righteousness 
And yet he's surrounded by people with all manner of unrighteousness. So, so now what? But I think this is so instructive for us. Because I'm convinced that most Christians at this point, and let me specify, most theologically astute Christians that adhere to Reformed theology would have turned around and went back home. Or they would have parked outside underneath a shade tree in the name of faith. I'm afraid most would have encouraged these men to stop what they were about to do. If you'll indulge me for a moment, uh, at this point, somebody comes behind one of the four men and taps him on the shoulders, one of the townsmen named Hyper Henry. And he says, good sirs, I am going to really appreciate what you're seeking to do for this poor man, but don't you realize God is sovereign? I mean, he doesn't need your help. What's this, all, what's this display of urgency and human effort? I mean, enough with that. Why don't, why don't, you, why don't you just trust? I mean, Jesus said, doesn't Jesus Himself say He came to seek and save those that are lost? You're going to help Him out? I mean, what's all this labor and seeking and sweating and determination? I'm convinced most folks in this day would have stopped these men. In the name of honoring God. Gentlemen, good job. You tried. But we don't want to presume upon God, you see. We, we, we don't want to... I mean, it's clear. You tried. You couldn't get in. It's not God's will. Off with you now. Leave the results to the Lord. and, and uh, What? Roof? You're going to go through the roof? What are you, Arminian? What's wrong with you people? I mean, can't God perfectly heal your friend right here outside? Certainly he can. I mean, why don't you be good reformed brothers and just wait upon the Lord through the roof? That's nonsense. We don't want to lean upon the arm of the flesh. We want to be dignified people, right? We want to be we want to demonstrate that we actually trust the living God. Well, let me ask you, whether whether for theological reasons or not, how how easily do you give up on people? Yes, there are some qualifying statements I could make right here, but I'm not going to. Because I want us to consider how easily we might be turned away from pursuing things that are good. Because they're difficult. I'll get to that point. Because they're not normal. Let me ask you, what? listen, yeah, we know the story, but this story is developing right here, right now. What would you have done be honest, what would you have done? When providence throws an obstacle in front of you and causes you to face something, faces all manner of resistance, right? And the thing you're pursuing, you just give up? You're not, kind of, you're not seeing the results you want to see or you're hoping for? Do you just give up? Well, it must not be, God must not be in this. I'm not seeing the fruit that I, that I ought to be seeing. must not be His will. No point carrying on here. I mean, if, if it's God's will, wouldn't the doorway be open? Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't I be able to get in if, it was, if God was in this? I mean, I attempted. I tried. I, I guess He doesn't want me to continue. 
Not these men. Not these men. They came all this way. However long this way was, they came with this guy, carrying this guy. And they arrive to the scene. They discover you know, the openings are all blocked and barricaded by a swarm of bodies. And, and they still try to get in. They still try to penetrate the crowd and can't get in. And when they, know, they realize they're not going to make it, they don't quit. That's not their first thought. I, I can imagine these two guys, they can't get in. They look at the roof. They look at each other. And one of them says, you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> yes. Let's go roof, boys. Here we go. We're going. Step aside, Hyper Henry. We're going into the roof. So through the roof. And, and that leads us to our second observation about saving faith. It will not be denied. It must get to Christ. Whatever the obstacles, whatever the inconvenience, whatever the cost, these men would not be denied. Verse 4, And when they could not get near Him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. These men were determined to get their friend to Christ. Even if it meant tearing up somebody else's roof to do so. Brethren, who does that? <laughs> I mean, who tears up someone else's property with an expectation of God's blessing upon them? These men. <laughs> which is the third observation, which I hinted at. Saving faith. It's this observation about saving faith. Adventures beyond the norm. Well, the norm would have been parked outside at the shade tree and... Not these guys. No. You know, sometimes we use the expression today, through the roof. You ever heard that expression? We, we use it talking about inflation, especially today. Inflation, taxes, you know, maybe our sales is through the roof. You know, something that's something that's been accelerated to a very high level, right? So high it's like shooting through the roof. Well, with these men, we could actually say their faith was spiritually through the roof. We could actually say their, their faith was literally through the roof. I, I was thinking about this event from a preacher's standpoint. I, back in the day when Tim and I and, uh, and another family were starting a church plant, trying to start a church plant in Floresville, and we had, we had a nice little building, needed some work, we worked on that. And uh, it had a metal roof. I don't know if you remember this, but. <laughs> It had a metal roof and there was trees in the backside, the side and the backside. I think they were might have been pecan trees or some oak tree. It had nuts, I'll tell you that. And uh, so I, it was a Sunday I was preaching and in the middle of the, of the message, it was something plopped on this. It was a squirrel. A squirrel plopped on the roof. I don't know what time of year it was. It must have been nut gathering season or something because that squirrel kept going pitter-patter back and forth. Right in the middle. There's like 10 people, maybe tops 10 people in the, in the building, and it was such a distraction. <laughs> in fact, I was even getting distracted by it. And, and finally, I reached a point to say, okay, squirrel, you win. I can't compete with this. And I don't remember what happened after that, but this scene reminded me of that. What a distraction this must have been for Jesus standing there trying to teach these people. Sure, he spoke as no one ever spoke before. And I'm sure that held the attention of the people when this thing first started. You know, you got a few 
if you hear a few noises, I mean, imagine it right now. You know, you get some tile from the top, it's falling on James' head. And what a distraction that would be to everybody sitting behind James. Well, this kind of thing's happening, right? I mean, at first, it's, you know, it's not so bad because, you know, this is Jesus talking. People are locked into what he has to say. But then, you know, it gets noisier. You got some straw trickling down on people's heads and, you know, dried mud. And, and before you know it, there's sunlight's breaking through. And, and, you know, even Jesus can't compete with this distraction. So he pauses and allows the opening to happen and the men to drop this guy down. Now I'm thinking about what is Peter thinking? If this is his house, you know, Peter, his personality, I think he's up in arms. I mean, hey, that's my roof. What are you doing? Well, there could have been many responses, but you know what? The Holy Spirit wants us to know the most important response. It's Jesus' response. Right there in verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is a most remarkable statement. Jesus doesn't... He doesn't upbraid them for tearing up the roof. He doesn't stop them and say, hey, do you realize who I am? Although I think both of those responses would have been appropriate. He doesn't rebuke them for interrupting in His teaching. Listen, you good for nothing. Don't you realize, do you have any respect for the, for the teaching of God's Word? That's not Jesus' response. The text tells us Jesus was looking what was behind this activity. He was seeing what was at the root of this endeavor. Their faith. Which is a fourth observation of saving faith. Jesus sees it. Which really is the most important matter about faith, right? Not whether you have it or you think you have it, but does Jesus see your faith? And does He indeed see it to be faith that saves? Faith that results in sins forgiven. You see, saving faith is visible. You can see it. It shows up. And when Jesus saw their faith, you know, it really wasn't so much the distraction itself that stopped the preaching. It was the faith behind the distraction. Once faith cut its way into that home and came down in, everything came to a halt. You want to get Jesus' attention? Faith gets Jesus' attention. Remember the centurion? I mean, not only did Jesus see the centurion's faith, the Bible says, he marveled. Think on that for a little bit. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. And I got thinking about that preparing. I'm like asking, Lord, have you ever marveled at my faith? I want Christ marveling faith. Lord, give it to me. I want that. Don't you? I mean, that centurion, he had it. In fact, Jesus essentially rebuked the Jews, saying, this guy here, Gentile God, I ain't seen faith in all Israel like this guy. You think about the lady with the issue of blood for 12 years. We're going to get to that in John 5. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. But you know, there she is, this lady. Jesus is swarmed with people on every side and they're pushing, they're, they're grabbing, they're, 
they're touching him. It's all this chaos happening. And undetected, she slips in there and grabs the hem of his garment. And when she does that, stops Jesus in his tracks. Why? Faith. That's why. Her faith got the attention of the Savior in the middle of all that commotion. Well, here we are in a house full of people with all kinds of excitement to hear and see more. Something, something far, far deeper than mere curiosity and bodily ailment enters into this house. Faith was now present. And Jesus was very aware of it. I'm not even sure how much the paralytic was aware of it. But Jesus was. And because of that, Jesus' first act isn't to heal a guy like He's done to so many other people. just immediately goes to the healing. He doesn't do that here. This guy was different. And his friends that were with him were different. They had a different regard for Jesus. And so Jesus looks him straight in the face and He tells him, Son, what words? Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Wow. I'm thinking when they when he heard those words and his friends, I'm thinking they were a bit shocked by that. They were stunned by it. I mean, they were coming for bodily healing. I don't think they were disappointed in the least, but they got something they weren't expecting. Or in t- no one else, no one was for that matter. In fact, I'm quite certain after the initial whispers of shock, that place got quiet. Why? Why do I say that? Because in making this statement, Jesus is emphatically making a claim to deity. That would would have been clear to everyone present, especially the scribes. We see that, right? In verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Notice the scribes were sitting. They sure managed to get their themselves positioned, didn't they? In a nice comfy seat of honor to hear what Jesus had to teach. But, but they raised this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? It has a very obvious answer to it, doesn't it? No one. No one can forgive sins but God alone. They got that right. But you see, they were not ready to accept the implications of what that meant for the one who just uttered that statement. And Jesus picks up on this as fast as He picks up, picks up on the faith that comes into that room. Verse 8, And immediately, Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk? See, for Jesus, both of these things were very easy. Both the physical healing and the spiritual healing, easy for Him. But you could easily see how a scribe, knowing what they know, how they would balk at such a claim initially. Right? Serious claim. So Jesus responds, he meets them right where they're at in their thinking. I'll grant you, it's easy for someone just to say the words, your sins are forgiven, and because there's no tangible evidence. No, no, nothing in this physical realm that can actually prove that the sins are forgiven. 
I'll grant you that. No real proof. However, you see, I have power and authority in both realms, physical and spiritual. And to show you that I have power and authority in the spiritual realm to forgive sin, I'm going to demonstrate that I have power and authority in the physical realm by making this man right here walk. Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. In, in healing this guy, Jesus is publicly declaring, deity is standing in your midst. God is here manifest in the flesh. You see, the, the great hindrance to the scribes and the Pharisee and the lawyers of Jesus' day, you know what it was, the great hindrance? Their learning and their social status. That was the stumbling block for them. In fact, it's the very same thing that some of you also make a stumbling block. The very same thing you long for and thirst after Learning, advancement, get the job, nice job, get the big pay, get more power, gain my social status to be higher, get the approval and the acceptance of others, get more media followers. You know what that path leads to? Numbness to God. Blindness to the person of Jesus Christ and ignorance of your greatest need before Him. That's where these men were. The inability to feel or even see that you're no different than that man laying down in the bed. No different, spiritually speaking. You are paralyzed from head to toe and don't even know it. These folks just had God in the flesh revealed to them in unmistakable fashion by what just took, transpired here. And yet, they left the scene, their hearts completely unfazed by it. Instead of awe and worship, instead of marveling at this one who not only just removed this man's paralysis, but he also, in doing so, he demonstrated that he's forgiven his sin. Instead of it causing them to fall down and worship, their first thought is, Blasphemy! Their first thought is to discredit Jesus and pump up themselves. That's sin. I know the law. I'm a law keeper. I'm, I'm an outstanding guy. Their, their first reaction was, was to make Jesus look bad and themselves look good. Self-righteousness. And you know what? That's such a frightening reality that I fear happens every single time God's Word is opened up and spoken publicly. Just like these scribes, you can bear witness to God's power through His Word and through His people and yet walk away completely unaffected by it. That is scary. That's frightening, my friend. It is. I mean, Tim was talking about the face earlier. 
the faces. Imagine the look at the just think about this scene, the contrast of faces. This guy who just had his I mean he, he's beaming, his face is beaming with joy from ear to ear, smiling, and these guy old guys over with a scrawl and you know they're all angry and trying to find fault with it. And it's just a contrast of the faces between the two groups here. Blinded by pride. Oh God have mercy. Well, a fifth observation here about saving faith. It flows from broken and unimpressive people. I mean, lots of folks came to hear Jesus speak. So many that Mark can say there was, there was no room. Many came to hear, but how many of them walked away with their sins forgiven? We, we only know of this man. And apparently those who fit the description, their faith. Clearly this guy was not important to the community. I mean, if he was, they would have found a way to get him in the house, right? But he didn't get in the house, at least not the conventional way, because they didn't have regard for him. Because there's nothing about this guy that was impressive to human flesh. Nothing. He was a feeble, broken man. No strength. He couldn't even stand on his own two feet. Couldn't much, do much of anything. I mean, the guy couldn't build a house. He couldn't plow. He couldn't fish. He couldn't do anything, much of any good for anybody. He couldn't provide for someone. He couldn't defend anyone. In fact, he was, no doubt, he was largely looked upon as some unwanted burden. No, here's a, here's a guy, I mean... He can't help put any food on the table, but he's another mouth to feed. And there's so many well-able people under this roof, fully healthy, heads full of Scripture, and yet none of them grab the attention of the Savior but this guy. This poor disabled man who couldn't take care of himself had nothing, absolutely nothing, and that's in the picture, nothing to offer Jesus. He couldn't even take himself to Jesus. He drops into the house and immediately gets the Savior's attention. Right away. I mean, all that men boast in, all that they esteem to be important and impressive and worthy of emulation, this guy had none of it. None of it. And yet Jesus sees him as an object perfectly fit for His love. Why? Because he had something far more impressive than anything flesh can produce. Faith. There he lay. Just think about it. He lays there. Here he lays. This pile of just dirt. No doubt dirty, smelly brokenness. And yet emanating from that dirty, smelly brokenness is this beautiful aroma to God that he is so pleasing in His sight. This thing called faith. Imagine how a person, even in our day, the treatment of people like that. But imagine in that day, it was even worse. Despite all his ill treatment and all the horrific providence in his life, he could have easily let himself get angry and bitter and hard. Like, you know, he wasn't like other men, didn't experience the blessings. You know, he couldn't work like other men. He couldn't walk like other men. He couldn't couldn't provide for a family. He didn't have a family. You know, he, he didn't have the blessings that. So many people that aren't paralyzed experience and take for granted. 
Yet deep in his heart, he knew he had need of forgiveness. He knew he had sin. He knew his spiritual condition was no better than his physical. And he longed for restoration both physically and spiritually. And Jesus gave him the longing of his heart. The proud, the blind, the self-righteous walked away with nothing. Walked away unchanged. Well, the sixth observation of saving faith here is it's a means by which others are brought to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. You believe that? It's pretty evident here. You see, a Christian is one who's had their sins forgiven by God. That's what makes somebody a Christian. This man represents an overall picture of fallen humanity. We're all completely broken and powerless due to sin left to ourselves, just like this man was prior to his encounter with Jesus here. That's us. It's everybody. It's all of humanity pictured in this man right here. Those of us sitting here that are Christians that have saving faith, you know it. You were one time paralyzed by sin. You know you were. You experienced it. And yet God graciously sent someone or some your way to bring you to Jesus, to bring the news of the Gospel to you that your sins might be forgiven. And it might have been a faithful witness at work. It might have been a faithful relative of yours or a coworker or a friend. It might have been someone who handed you a Bible or a track and faithfully uh, put it in your hand. It might have been someone who faithfully sent you a message online or continued to invite you to church faithfully and you came and sat under, under a service and heard the message and God saved your soul. Or it might have been someone faithfully praying for your soul. Although it's not mentioned here, I think there's a strong implication of prayer in this passage. Our God is a God of means. And He delights in using human means as instruments in His saving work. Brethren, that's why we're here. That's exactly why you and I are here. To live lives like these four men. To bring poor, weak, broken people to Jesus. Not so we can fix them, but so He can fix them. Rosaria Butterfield, she's a converted feminist, lesbian, was very active in the LGBT community for years prior to God saving her. She was a professor at Syracuse University. You know how God saved her? The faithful witness of her neighbor who happened to be a pastor. <laughs> and they invited her over and she was resistant at first. I mean, he's... You know, two different total worlds, polar opposites. Eventually, she takes the she takes the invitation and she keeps coming every week over for, for dinner. And it was through the process, as their relationship grew, her respect for the truth and the faithfulness that these people lived out and proclaimed before her broke her and brought her to Christ. The reality of their faith was the means that saved her. See, the difference between heaven and hell is a difference of forgiveness. It is. Hell is going to be full of sinners. And you know what? Heaven's going to be full of forgiven sinners. 
But notice what happens to forgiven sinners. Verse 10, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Forgiveness is followed by obedience. And that's our seventh observation about saving faith. It proves itself to be genuine by its obedience to Christ. You also find that in John 1. Or 1 John. Notice, notice here. Jesus asked this man to do what he could not do. Right? Jesus asked him something that was impossible for him to do by himself. My friend, this is Christianity. It's Christianity. It's, it's not a religion of human doing. It's supernatural. It requires divine empowerment. Saving faith is supernatural faith even in its weakest, tiniest form. And if you think something other than you've been sold a bill of goods that are, that are not Christ's goods. You see, true saving faith is proven by a trust that obeys. This man can't do what Jesus is asking him to do before Jesus tells him to do it. Impossible. But once Jesus tells him to do it, He does it. Mark, Mark says He does it immediately. There was no delay, no hesitation, laden with excuses, no theological reasonings seeking to excuse what Jesus plainly told him to do. Oh, Jesus, I'm, you know, I'm, just a, I'm a poor old wretched paralytic. I can't do that. I can't do anything. You know, I'm... Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. Don't, don't lie there and think about all the challenges that are presented doing what I'm asking you to do. Don't think you, you can or can't do this or what might happen to you if you do. Or Get up and obey what I say. Saving faith does it. It doesn't look for exemptions or excuses. It doesn't dwell in self-pity. It acts in accordance with what Jesus Christ wants. I mean, can you imagine what this guy was thinking? <laughs> I'm thinking there must have been a tremendous mixture of absolute joy and fear all at the same time. Just utterly gripping this man. I mean, he gets up and he's totally amazed the fact he's standing and then he quickly looks at the one who tells him to rise, take up his bed and walk. And he starts, he starts rolling up his bed or I don't know what kind of bed it was. Whatever it is, he grabs it and he's looking at Jesus and he's going to be right about obeying Him. And he's walking away and he's still looking back in astonishment at this one who just did this. This is, this is Christianity. This is what happens to those who are made whole by Jesus. They're, they're astonished and they're obedient. The first thing he did, the first thing this guy did, this forgiven sinner did, was obey the words of Christ. Not run back to his sin. Oh, now I got feet and legs. I can really go after my sin. No, that's not what he did. He followed Jesus' instruction. This guy just became a new man. I mean, everything changed. And that's what happens in conversion. A metamorphosis takes place. The caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's what happens in regeneration. The old things pass away. Everything becomes new. New creature in Christ. 
Rosaria Butterfield says this. I just saw this clip by her and it stopped me. I thought it was a great quote. As a believer, you cannot have a secret love for sin and an authentic love for Christ. Amen. That's coming from someone who was very steeped in feminism and was engulfed in a homosexual lifestyle for decades. She understands both scripturally and experientially that regeneration is a heart transplant. A new heart producing new desires and new allegiance occurs the moment you become, you go from being a paralytic spiritually to made whole. From unable to be, to being unable to walk to walk freely. Well, our final, as we close, our final and eighth observation of saving faith is saving faith's sole object and hope is Jesus Christ plus or minus nothing. A lot of people talk about faith. You know, almost like it's some obscure thing. It's almost like faith's object is not faith itself. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to keep the faith. You got to have the faith. As if faith was some ambiguous sphere of positive thinking, just positivity. Oh, yeah, you got to keep the faith. Or whatever helps you get through your day or. No, saving faith has a distinct, exclusive object, and that object is Jesus Christ and nothing else. His person and His atoning work for sinners. Not Jesus plus what you contribute. Not Jesus plus your own religious devotion. Not Jesus plus your prayer, your sinner's prayer. Not Jesus plus your baptism. Not Jesus plus your feelings. Not Jesus plus anything. Listen, He stood in the place of guilty sinners. He bore our guilt and shame. People broken by sin. Jesus became broken for them. He bore our sins in His body, the Bible says, on that tree. The righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. He absorbed the wrath, just wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. That's who Jesus is. The sin, the, the judgment you deserve, judgment I deserve, Jesus took upon Himself. But you know what? That precious, the Bible says, God so loved the world. Jesus said, no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. Listen, that precious love and that precious act of atoning death, those precious drops of blood, they're only effectual. They're, they only apply to the one who just like this paralytic here brings all their brokenness to Jesus and trusts in Him alone. Him alone as their only means of forgiveness and their only means of being made whole. And listen, if He justifies you, He sang it. The work of sanctification goes right with it. It's not a separate, it's not a separate thing. It's not an optional thing. If God justifies you and makes you righteous in the courtroom of God, He's going to work out that righteous life in your life as a, as, a, as a believer. There's no such thing as 
as disobedient Christians. Yes, they can. Uh, I'm not saying a Christian can't disobey, but a, a, the Christian life is a life of following Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they what? They follow me. They don't go contrary to me. They don't walk away from me. They're following the Savior. They're following this one. You think this man wanted to defy Christ? He was laying there on a cot. How many, how many years? We don't know. There he was laying. Jesus says, "Rise, take up your bed." That was an instant worshiper right there. Listen, if God sets you free from your sin and the power of darkness, the first thing you want to do is love Him and serve Him and honor Him. Not run out and see, oh, now, now I got that taken care of. I can go to heaven. I can go out and sin all I want. That, that's, that, that doctrine comes out of hell. That doesn't come out of the Scriptures. So let me ask you, do you know Him? Do you know this, this Savior? This One who Him alone can say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Has He ever said that to you? Do you know those words personally? Does, does Jesus see your faith? And see it to be just that? And if so, what kind of crazy things does your faith seek to do? I think we should be challenged by that, right? These four men, they're looking for something unconventional, a way to get to Christ. They wouldn't be stopped by crowds. Now, maybe it wouldn't result in you going home and tearing up your neighbor's roof, but but I think these men should challenge us. What ways are we 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 trying to figure out ways we can get people to Christ? We're just settling for the ways everybody else does it, just the easy way or it's conventional or you know we try but it just doesn't work. And these men challenge—they should challenge us. I think they were left in Scripture to do just that. Challenge our faith. How can we think of ways, regardless of what the world says, these guys didn't care what anybody else said. They got the commendation of Jesus. <laughs> That's what we want, right? God help us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for such a wonderful Savior. Well, we want this saving faith and all these observations to be a reality in our life. We want to grow. We want to honor Him. Lord, help us. I pray You'd have mercy on folks that continue to make Your Gospel a stumbling block. Lord, please come in pity. Show them their own brokenness. Show them their pathetic state just like this man that we've read of here. Lord, You'd set people free. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.